0: Migration Conversations is a podcast that invites persons to share their migration stories. Hosted by myself, Professor Jamie Liu, each episode is an in depth conversation with people who have experienced the Canadian immigration system or other migration regimes up close. We talk to migrants, immigrants, lawyers, policymakers, advocates, and experts. We hope that these conversations shed light on the challenges migrants face through their own voices. Today on Migration Conversations, I speak with three scholars about their book containing diversity Canada and the Politics of Immigration in the 21st Century. Yasmin Abu Laban is the Canada Research Chair in the Politics of Citizenship and Human Rights and a Professor of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Ethel Tongoin is the Canada Research Chair in Canadian Migration Policy, Impacts and Activism and an associate professor of politics at York University. Christina Gabriel is a professor of political science at Carleton University. Their book is not only an important teaching tool in all of our classrooms, but an important resource for those of us thinking about policy in the immigration and refugee um, realm. And I think important with regards to how we think about uh, citizenship, identity, and belonging in Canada. Welcome to all of you. I want to first congratulate you all for this tour de force. This book was ambitious, comprehensive, so clear and thought-provoking. And I want to encourage to I want to acknowledge first of all two things that I loved in this book. First, um, the built-in syllabus at the end, teaching ideas, the additional materials that you incorporate. I really loved that Kind of work that you incorporated to help people use the book but also to generate uh, different ideas about where to get different sources and secondly how you spoke prominently about feminist scholarship on care how care work is undertaken by migrants uh, i think that was really well done throughout the book and i really appreciated that for scholars looking at big scale collective research projects ones that want to emulate approaches to care towards their work and in relation to the subjects that we are working with and studying, I wondered if you could talk first about how this project came about, why you used care as a critical lens, and how you embarked on this labor of research as well. I, you know, I just think about how all three of you are very um, engaged and very busy advocates and academics and just how how this project came together and how you actually got it done given the times that we just have experienced.
1: Yeah well maybe I'll I'll jump in and just say thank you so much Jamie for having us on your really terrific uh, podcast Migration Conversations. Uh, Chris and Ethel and I are are all very very happy to be here. Um, So the book um, containing diversity really kind of started its life based on the fact that um, Chris and I had a previous collaboration in editing the 2002 book, um, Selling Diversity. Um, And that was a book that looked at um, immigration, but it also looked at other policies like multiculturalism and employment equity. And so we wanted to do another book, not a new edition of the old book, but rather a completely new and different Book just looking at immigration. Um, and so as we were working on that concept, um, Ethel, who I'd known for a few years, Uh, came to the University of Alberta, Um, she did a postdoc there and then went on from there uh, later to York as a a professor where she is now. Um, And Ethel was heavily engaged in research on temporary uh, foreign workers and domestic workers. And so it just kind of made sense for the three of us to be um, working um, together. And I think we shared a common motivation. And that was that um, as we were moving through the mid and late uh, 2010s and into the 2020s, um, it was clear that Canada's immigration policy was really shifting. And so, um, in the book, we situate Canada's immigration um, policy in relation to Canada's history as a settler colony. But the emphasis is really on tracing uh, the period from uh, 9/11 uh, or 2001 um, through to the pandemic in in 2021-22. Um, and uh, Uh, Yeah, so that's really the the uh, the uh, genesis of the book in terms of the care lens that we brought to it. um, It's a major um, way that we uh, felt um, would make sense for the book. It's immediately applicable in the fact that many folks who migrate are involved in what might be called caring labor in homes and in service and in care facilities. But it's also a lens deeply connected to feminist care ethics um, and a perspective on the world that stresses our very human need for care and our inter- interrelationships with one another. And so we use this uh, lens to help illuminate a path towards thinking about an ethics of immigration and moving moving beyond simply describing and analyzing the kinds of changes that we were seeing, uh, but also pushing to thinking about, okay, what, what ought things to look like? Um, maybe I'll stop there and let someone else pick up on <laughs> how we work together.
2: Um, okay, so I'll jump in. Um, as Yasmin mentioned, this is the second book that she and I uh, worked on together. And we met as postdocs at the University of Alberta. And I have to say, we wrote that first book over the course of a summer in Ottawa. Well, yes, mean was house-sitting. And as scholars at that time, we were sort of beginning our career and the demands on our time were so very different than what they were for this um, volume. And even the expectations I would say of academics probably uh, changed um, as, as well. Um, all to say the conditions under which we embarked on this dare i say labor of love with Ethel what was very different than our previous um experience right and i think we all negotiated this writing project um with multiple demands on our time both professional and and personal and you know the pandemic really complicated and intensified those demands uh we all had care responsibilities. We all had kids, albeit at different ages. We were all, I think I speak for all of us, we're all very close to our parents. And um, so there were all those things at play when we um, did this, this book. Not the least of which, too, was the changes that happened in the period we were looking at were quick and fast. It was very difficult to keep trying uh, to keep up with what with what was happening um, as we were uh, doing this book. Um, additionally, um, we pursued this labor in three different cities: Edmonton, Toronto, and Ottawa. And I think our first meeting took place in Edmonton, and it was very exciting. It was face to face. We tossed around a lot of ideas. But as the project moved forward, I made lunch. <laughs> as the project moved forward, we. We took responsibility for chapters or sections of chapters. We did not all necessarily meet together. Um, Sometimes two of us met, sometimes all of us, but we read and reviewed the drafts um, and then we connected. And our connections ultimately came by phone or Zoom. And really, as we were finishing the manuscript and responding to the reviewers, it was the pandemic, everything took place by Zoom. And I can't speak for Ethel or Yasmin, but for myself, I think meeting and working remotely is really different than how we embarked on that project. I mean, it was very productive, but I also think I missed lunch, for example, the kind of other connections um, that you make.
0: Ethel, did you have anything you wanted to add?
3: or? I think Yasmeen and Chris covered it all, but I also wanted to echo that you know, our lives also were affected <laughs> by the pandemic and by some of the events that were taking place during the decade-long, was it a decade? <laughs> decade-long time spent during which we were writing the book. And, you know, I mean, I, I started the book as a postdoc without kids. Now I have two kids and try to get to the finish line while dealing with, while being in the sandwich generation of having parents to take care of, but also children to take care of, that was hard. That being said, this was a labor of love. And I'm so happy to have worked with Yasmin and Chris.
0: Yeah, I can tell that the three of you have a special connection and that uh, you care for one another in a really profound way. So, you know, congratulations again for, for this wonderful book and and for sharing, you know, the the very personal struggles um, to get this book to publication. Um, So maybe I'll move on to, you know, what the book actually touches upon, which, you know, some of you have touched upon, which is, you know, so often when we're studying immigration law and policy, we find contradictions in its aims, objectives, and processes. And I myself have taught these contradictions, but not so much in the terms that, you present and um and we'll be turning to it more frankly in, in the future. And specifically, the first three chapters of the book speaks about these contradictory processes in terms of neoliberalism and criminalization and how they're implicated in reproducing narratives regarding desirable and undesirable immigrants. I wondered if you could, for our listeners, kind of explain these processes, these contradictory dynamics found within the specific immigration policies that you use as examples in these chapters?
2: Um, Okay, so in the book, we highlight some of the values associated with neoliberalism. Um, You know, in, in thumbnail form here, like its emphasis on a smaller state, on freer markets, the deregulation of the economy, Um, and sort of the attendant values of competition, self-interest, responsibilization, for instance. And within that matrix, some migrants, notably those who are constructed, and that's important, constructed as high-skilled, are seen as sources of comparative advantage within a global context. That is, they not only enhance the country's bottom line, like to compete in a global economy, but it's assumed that when they enter Canada, they'll sort of hit the ground running. They'll secure a job quickly. They'll not draw on public goods. They'll support their family. So consequently, high-skilled migrants are constructed as desired or the ideal migrant. And as we show through the policy developments, we illustrate there's an openness towards attracting uh, that group. Right? you know a real uh, a real attempt to recruit. That group of people. In contrast migrants that are constructed as as low skill or as members of the family class are constructed as undesirable precisely because there is a perception they will they will be uh, unproductive. Um, that is they will not secure work or and or they will draw on public goods such as the welfare state. So consequently a discourse of crime and security associates these groups of migrants as, as as threats. It links them to fraud, uh, to criminality, uh, to illegality. And when you have that type of construction in place or that type of narrative, policies tend towards closure, right? Because you've set up one group of, of people as an ideal and the other, other group uh, as, as a burden. And you're not interested in recruiting uh, the latter. And that's kind of what we're we're tracing uh, through those first three, those first three chapters, those contradictory impulses that see both an open and a closure of borders, but to different selectively to different groups of people.
3: And I'll just add something to that. I think this is why I love the title of her book so much, uh, Containing Diversity. Uh, On the one hand, uh, Canada's perception in the global stage as being welcoming of diversity, as being multicultural, as being kind of this haven for immigrants. I was in the United Kingdom recently for a fellowship, and we don't want to talk about the UK now, right? Because quite frankly, I look at the policies there and I'm just like, Really, what's going on, right? So I'm not—I don't want to talk about that. But a lot of a lot of my colleagues there were saying, "Well, Canada's just so great, isn't it? I mean, you haven't—you haven't kind of put into question humanitarian migration, right?" And I was like, "Actually, we have." Um, and so I think in contrast, kind of our our perception, the global perception of Canada as being this like world leader for immigration, what this book does quite well, I think, is we actually trace that we want diversity, but only certain types of diversity, right? We want migrants, but we specifically want high-skilled economic migrants without dependents. And so we see these contradictions at play in different policy arenas as well.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Ethel. And if I can maybe build upon that, um, you talk a little bit about like this desirability of high skilled, and yet this construction of what is high skilled or, you know, kind of de-skilling certain kinds of migrants in their work and um, I think the book also aptly describes, you know, this distinction in the skilled worker aspect of the immigration regime um, through how there is preferred categories within that system. Um, and in chapters four and five, you show that despite this preference, persons who come through such categories are nevertheless subject to, um, you know, exploitation and abuse while perpetuating problematic bans and border limitations as acceptable means to manage our immigration program, something that Christine and you both talked about, the containment, the kind of ways in which we constrain or restrict um, and, you know, um, the book notes that the Trudeau government early and um, throughout has also carried on these, these problematic uses of the precarious or temporary programming of, of the immigration system. And in fact, early in the Trudeau government's uh, mandate, they purported to study through a parliamentary standing committee, the use of temporary programs. Um, but yet we've seen very little movement with regards to using or reducing or eliminating the use of temporary work programs, despite all the information we have out there about how it creates exploitation abuse and how it doesn't actually lend to um, very conducive ways to, um, um, f- you know, feeding a market full of, of labor and addressing labor needs. So Ethel, I wondered if you could expand on that.
3: For sure. And I think one thing that's interesting is I'm really plugged into uh, migrant advocacy networks, and there's always a bloody consultation, right? Like, you know, I think a new government comes, a new federal government comes, there's another consultation. And my God, you know, some of the advocates just say, okay, but we've said this right? Like nothing we're seeing is new. And I think there's a few reasons for why uh, we still keep running into, this, into the same problems, right? Like why are temporary labor migrants still, still facing a lot of, you know, curtailments of their rights? And I think first, I would argue that an, a big disadvantage for temporary labor migrants is that they're not Canadian citizens, right? They cannot vote, they can't run for public office. And, you know, Against that, they also, we also then have like agribusiness employer lobby groups, all of whom are Canadian citizens, right? So when you look at it in terms of kind of scales of influence, citizens, i.e. those who are part of these lobby groups, already exert more influence than temporary labor migrants who, by virtue of not being able to vote, tend to not get listened to, right? Um, And so, you know, because they're not Canadian citizens, threatening to withhold, their vote uh, won't work. So this is why migrant advocacy movements have emerged and flourished. And that's why, you know, they've had to kind of take up other advocacy actions to make sure that their demands are heard. And the fact that we're even talking about the importance of good enough to work, good enough to stay, right? Permanent residence upon, upon arrival. I mean, that is because migrant advocacy movements made sure that they shift public discourses as, as well. So that's one thing, right? Like citizens uh, tend to be concentrated in employer's lobby group and agribusiness and temporary labor migrants are not. So there's already a power imbalance there. Secondly, if you kind of look outside Canada, what you can see is a convergence among advanced industrial states and their reliance on temporary labor migration schemes. Right. And so Canada is simply kind of following existing trends, right? And in fact, I almost think Canada feels that because other countries are doing this, why can't we also keep relying on temporary labor migration programs? And so, you know, I also think as part of that, um, what we're seeing is an expansion of Canada's temporary labor migration workforce beyond kind of the accepted categories. And I know, Jamie, that you've kind of, you know, based on your tweets, I've seen you tweet about this too. Like, for example, international students have also become part of Canada's migrant labor workforce, right? I.e. students don't necessarily just come here to study a lot of them come here in order to be able to support their their families and perhaps even apply for permanent residency so people are here to 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 get permanent residency not necessarily to study and because of that you see that a lot of you see a lot of stories of international students becoming exploited in similar ways to migrant workers right so i think what we're seeing is that, you know, these are larger global trends, is part of this larger global trend to, to institute two-step migration, to, to increasingly use temporary labor migration programs. But, like, to counter that, you also see a growth and a flourishing of migrant movements that are really trying to question uh, our our our, you know, our use of two-step immigration and our use of temporary labor migration programs. And I do think, you know, kind of to, to like, wrap up my response in a more hopeful note, I do see that a lot more folks are more kind of politically active and are seeing what's going on and are becoming, uh, you know, a part of these migrant solidarity movements. I see Justicia for Migrant Workers, for example. Um, I've gone to their events and I've seen a lot more interest and a lot more activists who are kind of, you know, waving the banner of, like, you know, Stronger support for the rights of migrant farm workers, right? Gabriel Aladua recently published a book, Harvesting Freedom, talking about how his experiences under the Seasonal Agricultural Workers Program actually can be traced to kind of histories of slavery and colonialism. And I've seen a lot of people, uh, not just people who are interested in migration, talking about that as well. So I see these kind of competing trends as as being part of kind of our political realities. But I am really hopeful that we have more people who are part of these advocacy movements as well.
0: Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I think one of the most interesting things that I think um, I experienced during the pandemic was just watching how people shifted their discussions about essential work and essential workers um and including migrants which was was never done before and I think you know the hope that I think uh, I I you know agree with you that hopefully that this kind of conversation continues that nothing gets lost since we're somewhat (laughs) uh, unclear whether we're out of the pandemic or not but you know as we're as we're moving towards um you know thinking about times when we can move past um shutdowns and things like that, how we can still incorporate our discussions about work and labor, including the perspectives of migrant workers. I completely agree with you on that. Like um, Moving along through the book, um, you mentioned, you know, I this two step migration process, but I think it's true there's, you know, two step in terms of getting status, but two steps in terms of also the ability to bring your families over too, right? And in chapter six, I personally loved how, you infuse care work in your analysis of restrictions of family immigration policies. And I wondered if you, Christina, could talk about how, despite the recognition that immigrants are needed for increasing demand of care work in general in Canada, that this policy rationale does not seem to resonate when it comes to family reunification. Um, if you could elaborate on that. Mm-hmm. I think this is
2: kind of related to the idea that people who enter through the family class are not seen as as desired or ideal um, migrants, despite the contributions that they make. So I think, and I think that is entirely related to how they enter the country, right? Because economic migrants are selected through a points-based model and or employer uh, preference, let's say, but there's sort of an a managerial aspect to that if you will like a way that they enter that's presented as ostensibly neutral as 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 fair as a process of competition whereas family class members enter through their familial relationship with someone already in canada and that is not necessarily a process that can be put into a managerial box let's say so they are cast as dependent on their sponsor, and their manner of entry implies, erroneously, that they're not going to make a contribution, a productive contribution to the economy. And I think that's important. So that kind of thinking underpins changes in targets for the family class, uh, narrow definitions of family, things like the introduction of the grandparent super visa that we gestured to, But as we try to highlight in that chapter, scholars have shown that people who do enter through the family class actually enter the labor market often. Um, And if we abandon this narrow economic calculus, uh, we would pay attention to the contributions members who enter through the family class make in the form of unpaid labor that supports the entry of other members of their family to the labor market. But more importantly, and I think it is important that we think beyond the economic or the productive, um, it's the importance of these members of a family, of a a household in terms of a strategy for integration to Canadian society as a whole, not just just the labor market. So while I think COVID certainly exposed a crisis of care that many of us have been talking about for, for some time, The focus of that discourse, I think, has demonstrated the increasing demand for paid care work, right? Like personal support workers, for nurses, for healthcare aides, all of which do really important work, all of which I might add, as many of us have been pointing out, has been undervalued because of its relation to care work. But I think perhaps there could be a greater discussion about uh, care work in the home and who who performs it. And certainly there have been interventions uh, during the course of the pandemic to show that women, for example, shouldered a greater uh, a responsibility for care work. But I don't think that discussion was really linked to um, migration, right? And it can be. And, and that, you know, maybe something that we need to think of as scholars of migration how to make those kinds of links. Does the pandemic offer an opening for that discussion to take place?
0: That's a really great point. You know, I think there was a lot of emphasis on um, kind of meeting society's immediate needs through um, the actual uh, employment of migrants. But what about you know extending that lens to the home, right? And and the multi-layered aspects that um, that families. Provide in terms of support and integration, as you said. So, thank you for yeah expanding the the conversation in that in that vein. To extend it maybe a little bit even further, I know that chapter seven, you know, talks about the reliance of multiculturalism perpetuating this political image that Ethel mentioned earlier about Canada as both a welcoming and humanitarian place. Um, And I found this chapter to speak to me quite deeply. Just you know, in watching things unfold in the last number of years, and uh, Yasmin, I wondered if you could talk about how the government has been able to deploy this trope of multiculturalism to avoid atoning or even addressing its racist and problematic approaches in its immigration policy. Um, Well. Uh, You know, it's interesting uh, because part of the framing
1: we have in the book is really to situate Canada as a settler colony. Um, And so if you look at something like immigration, it's really foundational um, to Canada being uh, a settler colony. Um, And uh, in particular, in the political economy literature, um, it's talked about as a so-called white settler colony of Britain, meaning it um, historically favored for entry and settlement those that were white, English-speaking Protestants um, from, you know, uh, especially from Great Britain. Um, And moreover, there was this kind of view that the country and its institutions were going to reflect um, Great Britain. So the demography and the institutions were supposed to be uh, coterminous with the motherland. Um, And so as a consequence of that, for much of Canada's history, other kinds of policies really favoured what's, Uh, referred to as Anglo-conformity, meaning that um, all other groups were supposed to conform to the the dominant uh, group. And so multiculturalism really in its um, initial um, articulation um, was um, not so much about immigrants as it was about citizens already in the country, and citizens already in the country contesting um, the terms of Um, Canada's, uh, uh, you know, um, idea of what the culture of the country was. Um, And so, um, you know, listeners will probably remember that there was the famous um, uh, Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism. And so um, a lot of uh, Ukrainian Canadians, for example, said, why are you saying the country is bicultural? We have made uh, contributions um, to this country. And these were second and third generation Ukrainians and others. And so in 71, you had uh, Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, um, uh, announcing a, a policy of, of multiculturalism. And um, that policy is now 50 years old. It hasn't always operated the same way. Um, one of the things to note is that, you know, kind of coterminous with the announcement of the policy, you started to have these shifts in immigration. So there were more um, folks arriving from. Uh, you know, countries of the developing world, uh, folks that were racialized. um, And so because of the entry of newcomers like that, there's a lot of demand to deal with racism, right? And so the policy kind of shifted in the 1980s to talk more about racism. But a real problem has been that anti-racism has really made this jack-in-the-box kind of appearance and disappearance um, over the years, depending on which government is in power. Um, And so one of the things we do in the book is really trace how um, under the Harper Conservatives, efforts at combating racism really um, disappeared. I mean, it was as if racism was not a problem in Canada. Um, it, they did talk about racism in other countries, particularly developing countries, but but somehow in Canada, there wasn't any, any problem. Um, and instead, the multiculturalism policy began to focus more on um, redress. And of course, some of those redress measures have been very meaningful for groups, you know. So, for example, um, apologizing for past wrongs like the head tax um was very meaningful for, for Chinese Canadians. Um, but in the process of doing that work, I think under the uh, Harper Conservatives, and what we trace in the chapters uh dealing with this in the book is that um, you know, exclusions and racism in the present were sort of ignored, right? And so Um, both citizenship um, and immigration, as we trace in the book, also became uh, more exclusionary um, in the Harper uh, period. Um, You know, for example, having um, new criteria for testing on on citizenship that made it more difficult for newcomers to actually um, get uh, citizenship um, and also shifts in the the rules for for entry. Um, And so, yes, multiculturalism, can make it seem on the one hand like Canada is a welcoming place. And at the same time as we saw, especially um, during that period of governance of the Harper years, it can be a kind of fig leaf over really problematic immigration policies. Um, Multiculturalism can also be used to kind of solidify uh, a settler identity. So that, you know, everyone who immigrates to Canada, um, whether, um, you know, recently or, in terms of their their family um, of origin can sort of happily be Canadian and, and forget about whose land they are on and, and Indigenous people. So these are, you know, some problematic aspects of how multiculturalism might be mobilized. One of the things we um, do trace in the book is that under the Trudeau liberals, there's been um, more emphasis um, than there than there was, um, and certainly during the Harper years, on anti-racism. And we also see possibilities for how uh, social movements on the ground may engage in. Uh, kind of revamping multiculturalism and giving it more more teeth through a kind of solidarity uh solidarity with different kinds of groups including indigenous peoples um, and perhaps even engaging in forms of uh what Audra Simpson has called co-resistance to oppressive structures and so these are things that we uh discuss in the book
0: yeah such an important thread and aspect in the book I would say because um you know what I think you all have done really well in the book, is just trace how, um, you know, how, how the, the government's been able to um, balance this kind of image with its purported policies of multiculturalism shifting and including anti-racism um, uh, approaches to things in some ways, but also showing how it can be uh, problematic in terms of how it um, accentuates or, you um, Um, establishes a particular um, order. Um, So I wondered if we could now maybe shift to the present. You know, I know your book covers a certain period of time, but I think it's so relevant to um, contemporary times and a little, you know, and and especially to the most recent, I would say, um, event of President Biden's visit, you know, the Canadian and American governments announced an expansion of The Safe Third Country Agreement and the Immigration Minister at the same time, you know, quietly announced a new program to resettle refugees as skilled workers. And this new program purports to pair skilled workers or skilled refugees, rather, and other qualified displaced individuals with Canadian employers who need to overcome labor shortages. And they say, quote, Canada was welcoming to vulnerable people while giving Canadian employers access to an untapped talent pool from which they can attract and retain employees with the skills they need to help grow our economy. And the idea behind this is to pluck refugees out of the camps to provide like a matching a humanitarian aim with an economic policy in our immigration system and I wanted to get your sense of what you thought about this happening at the same time as Biden's visit, you know, this kind of closure, containment at the border while appearing to be benevolent and strategic in its immigration policy. You know, I also kind of thought it was interesting that at the gala for President Biden's visit, there was a prominent Syrian businessman um, who was photographed gifting President Biden chocolate. So what do these contradictory images and moves mean to you happening seemingly parallel and unrelated? What can we learn given the things that you have um, talked about in your book.
3: I guess I'll start us off. I mean, I think it highlights the relevance of her concept containing diversity. And the way you've kind of described it, Jamie, I think I'm I'm starting to think, is this market multiculturalism, right? Like there are competing logic at play when we look at different immigration streams and trying to pair, you know, the humanitarian stream with kind of market logic seems a little bit fishy to me. That doesn't kind of pass the sniff test, right? And so I think, you know, one of the things that, disturbs me is how, you know, all of these seemingly separate events are taking place, but it seems as though we're not having a national conversation about this. A lot of immigration policies seem to take place in this black box where, you know, as we all know, right, like a lot of immigration policymaking is done through ministerial discretion, right? And so I think what the book tries to do is connect all of these seemingly disparate trends together um, and see that perhaps, you know, the frame of of containing diversity kind of captures that. But yeah, I'm curious to see what what others think. Um,
1: Well, I I mean, I think um, um, Ethel's right. Our book can explain everything. So (laughs) We we can go with that. But um, you know, um, the, the, the particular program um, that you're talking about, um, the you know, has um, been a pilot, right? So it's this economic mobility pathway pilot that actually dates back to 2018, but it's gone through um, different phases. Um, and what happened was that Canada worked with... Um, UNHCR with the United Nations um, High Commission for Refugees in kind of the aftermath of the passage of the so-called Global Compact on on refugees, and so what they're doing is saying um, we'll still accept refugees that are referred to us by UNHCR, um, which are the ones that UNHCR prioritizes, and and um, but but over and above that, Canada is saying we'd like refugees who are skilled. And it becomes a way to link humanitarian and economic immigration uh, by bringing in um, skilled um, refugees. It's a little bit akin to how refugees who could work in healthcare during the pandemic, the so-called uh, guardian angels could be um, given status. And And both of these kinds of programs had their supporters within government. But the challenge, of course, is it sets up uh, new criteria for what um, Audrey Macklin has called deservingness and, mm-hmm. and so, while it might be welcomed um, for who it includes clues, it that also, when you look at who it excludes seems completely arbitrary. Um, and when it comes to refugees in particular, um, you, you know, the in the in the post war period, um, the you know the reigning definition of what a refugee um, has been has come from the united nations and it's not based on skills and it's not based on you know helping in healthcare but rather um it's based on having a, a well founded fear of persecution and so um the, this the, you know the, this is a very um you know challenging uh, you know kind of um dimension to to canada's uh, policies right now um on the chocolate, maybe I will say something. <laughs> I thought it was Elizabeth May that gifted the uh, President Biden with it. I don't know exactly how it came about, but I knew he got this peace, uh, peace chocolate bar. Um, it's made by a company uh, called Peace by Chocolate, which is um, a company that's founded by Syrian refugees who uh, came to Antigonish, um, Nova Scotia, about seven years ago and literally... You know, sort of rebuilt because they had had a chocolate um, business in Syria and and they rebuilt it there. Um, if anybody's had the chocolate, they'll know it's delicious. It's like put <laughs> you know, um, it's it, it's it, it's like uh, you know, really I like chocolate, so I I can say that categorically. Um, and it's a success story in that this company has become. Uh, one of the largest employers in Antigonish. I was I happened to be in Halifax um, in the fall, and i I went to the, the store that they have in Halifax. it's It's really lovely. The chocolate's sold throughout Canada and and even the world. Um and i I will say for me, as somebody who's Arab origin given, you know, all the negative media portrayals, the stereotypes of Arabs, the stereotypes of Muslims and, and refugees coming from Syria or elsewhere um, in the Middle East, um, it, it, it um, has been, you know, really difficult. And it's important to have stories like this shared. So at, at a certain level, um, I you know, I welcome stories like this, but um, it certainly can also tap into some of the contradictions that we're seeing um, in you know, Canada's policies where, um, you know, refugees are, uh, you know, suddenly being looked at through the lens of their possible economic contributions instead of the lens of persecution. Um, And that at the same moment, and I think that's what you're really pointing to Jamie, that you can have, um, you know, the president of the United States um, alongside the prime minister of Canada um, extolling this Canadian success story of, One group of refugees that came here, which is an amazing story, but then making it more difficult for refugees to claim status at the border by extending the safe third country agreement across the, uh, you know, across the uh, Canada-US border instead of just at official points of entry. um, When there's been so much debate about the safe third country agreement and when in fact there's uh, a Supreme Court case that I think you've, you know, been involved with. Um, and your work as a lawyer, um, uh, y- you know that is still un- unfolding. So, um, you know, so these really are uh, great moments of, of of contradiction, and I think we do need a wider um, conversation um, about these current moves around the the U.S. Canada border um, and the problems that they pose for Canada living up to its international humanitarian obligations. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, thank you for your your nuanced and very um, thoughtful, you know, um, discussion about how the book weaves into these these current conversations, you know, and and things that you know are hard to reconcile, you know, as as um you know the public maybe watching them unfold or receiving the news in very, um you know, scattered ways. Um, I guess I wanted to ask you know a final question about the fact that you know, this book has a wide range of people that potentially could read it. You know, students, faculty, academics, researchers, but also policymakers. you know? And I wondered, you know, if there was, you know, we've talked a lot about the different ways in which, you know, there are um, improvements to be made or um, different problems with some of the programming and the ways in which the immigration system and the regime is structured. Um, but I wondered if you all had, you know, if you had an opportunity to talk to a policymaker, what is like, one or two things that you would want them to take home from this book? And w- one or two things that you would like to see implemented or for the questions for them to think about as they um, think about, because, as you mentioned, you know, it is a regime that's constantly changing, constantly experimenting with pilot programs and, you um, you know, inventing new ways to um, receive or constrain abilities to um, come to Canada. So I don't know if any of you had thoughts on what you would say um, in an elevator pitch, so to speak. (laughs) Well, I I mean, I think a
1: big one, um, because we're looking a lot at um, neoliberalism, but also the kind of evolution of Canada's uh, policy and its stress on Um, getting people that are skilled. I mean, a big one is to have, I I think that we need to ditch the language of skills basically. Um, And that um, this is a very invidious way to talk about um, people's contributions, um, the many ways that different people can have contributions. I think that we all, uh, as we talked about earlier, have seen a glimpse of that from the pandemic um, when, you know, certain kinds of work that never got called essential work before, you know, became essential. And you see how um, important that is um, to, uh, you know, to our interconnectedness and our interrelationships um, and functioning. So um, I, I would like to see a jettisoning of that language.
0: Yeah, thank you for that, Yasmin, uh, Christina or Ethel?
2: Maybe just to pick up on on Yasmeen's point um, a little bit, I think the federal government has in place through wage, women and gender equality, and through the Immigration Act, a commitment to uh, conduct uh, an analysis of intersectionality uh, or um, what is the government calling it now, GBA plus or um, but at any rate, it would be useful if they actually undertook that in a much more systematic way than we've seen. So, for example, if we look at the uh, the the uh, uh, initiative we're just talking about to uh, recruit refugees on the basis of skill, for example, that will have a differential uh, effect for different groups of 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 people. It introduces another form of stratification into a category that should not uh, be stratified. So in a sense, a lot of what we talk about in the book pays attention to intersectionality. It demonstrates the extent to which the categories may be dominated by racialized groups, by by women, by men, um, along with other kinds of uh, social relations. And I think that's something that's not picked up enough because it is is obscured through skills talk, through this uh, point that Yasmin is is getting at. Um, You know, we all valorize, uh, or there is a tendency to valorize skilled migrants. But in fact, when you probe that a little bit more carefully, there is a whole set of stratifications Uh, within that, that we really do need to look at much more carefully. And maybe that is something that, you know, if you were doing an elevator pitch to a policymaker, that in doing an evaluative analysis, that they could take that on board much more carefully. And in doing so as the first step to generate a new type of uh, rationale to inform future policy changes that are not the ad hoc back of a napkin um, sort of pilot project that then becomes institutionalized, with, without much uh, debate or even consultational consultation, sorry, by by the groups that are involved or affected uh, by the pilot, let's say.
0: Yeah, thank you for that. You know, so much of what occurs, as a, what Ethel mentioned earlier, is in a black box. So it would be interesting. <laughs> to suggest a point playing and say, you know, an intersectional analysis um, and, and a very deliberate one might lead to different ideas or results in the evaluation process. Ethel?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that. And I, I think, you know, the way Chris describes a black box, pol- I mean, napkin, you know, writing policies on the back of a napkin, it does seem like that, doesn't it? I mean, I think I do have very specific asks, but I'm not going to I'm not going to like belabor your listeners, because then I'm going to talk about language requirements and the IELTS requirements and the tyranny of putting in so many requirements that migrants who have to keep paying, right, out of pocket just to get permanent residency, even though they're already living and working here, that's that's horrible, right? But I do think, you know, in terms of kind of my larger ask, I mean, I think it's kind of taking a step back and really asking ourselves, what is the logic of immigration in Canada, right? It seems though immigration policy making and the book shows this is very like it seems very ad hoc right like you're responding to specific needs you're creating this pilot project it's in place for two years it shifts again the new rules are imposed in the other iteration of the pilot project right and I'm thinking specifically of migrant care worker programs so I think you know taking a step back and maybe thinking well you know what is the logic of having for example three streams of immigration right humanitarian family economic do we still need that? Do you know what I mean and I'm not prescribing anything either way but I'm just saying we need to have a conversation about this rather than kind of, you know, falling into this trap of thinking, well, it's always exited, existed, that's, it's, that's always supposed to be what we have to follow, right? So I think the book lends itself to kind of, and this is why I love the last chapter, right? Like, it, which talks about kind of the ethics of immigration, it kind of forces us to think, really, what is it that immigration policy serve? And mm-hmm. what is it that we want to envision um, in Canada as a country, right? And so I'll just stand there. Yeah, I think that's a
0: wonderful way to to frame the question, because I think, you know, from my perspective, at least, it doesn't seem to have a very a vision. Right. The immigration regime is very, as you said, ad hoc reactionary, um, responsive to to different things and often appears to be swayed by public opinion or the politician of the day. So I think it is um, a a good ask (laughs) to take a step back and say, what's the global you know, approach to the whole system and what are we trying to accomplish here? And I think that's a great way to end this conversation as well. I want to say thank you to all three of you. I've really admired your work for many, many years. And it was just a perfect excuse for me to meet some of you for the first time and to reacquaint my acquaintance with you for some of you that I've met already. And I'm just um, elated to be sharing with what likely is a very legal uh, audience, but... Also, maybe some policymakers who will hopefully think about some of the challenges you pose to them. So thank you so much for spending time with me today in your very busy schedules. Thank you, Jamie. Great. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. We really had a good time. Migration Conversations is created and hosted by me, Professor Jamie Liu, and produced by University of Ottawa student Adam Levesque. This podcast is made possible by the generous support of Carleton University and the University of Ottawa's Shared Online Projects initiatives. I want to thank former students June Gleed, Ritesh Kotak, and Rachel McNally for their support. You can find more Migration Conversations episodes anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening, and a special thank you to all of our guests who have shared their experiences publicly.